Hello, hello, welcome back to this thing we're doing together, you and me. We have been looking at Reformed theology, specifically the five points of Calvinism, which is summarized in that fun little acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. The T was total depravity, the U was unconditional election, the L was limited atonement, the I was irresistible grace. Today, we look at the P. Perseverance of the saints. And let me define... Let me define it and try to set this up before we look at all of these scripture passages that I'm going to throw at you here in a second. Here's what this basically means, the P, perseverance of the saints. It means that the elect in Christ are not only redeemed by Christ and renewed by the Holy Spirit, but they are also kept in faith by the power of God. In other words, true believers in Christ will persevere till the end. God doesn't begin something that he doesn't complete. Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith, as scripture puts it. This is the entire theological framework of Calvinism. And as I've been trying to argue, I think this is the entire theological framework of the Bible, that if I was unable to save myself and God did everything necessary for my salvation, then I'm not able to mess that salvation up. What God began, he will be good to finish it. And this really helps us answer this enormous personal question, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I have any assurance that I'm really a Christian? I mean, just think about it. How would you go about answering that question on your own? If I were to ask you, how do you know that you're a Christian? Like, where would you even start looking To answer that question, where do you begin? Well, this fifth point of Calvinism offers you the strongest theological basis of what what we might call the assurance of salvation. Uh, Because the Bible teaches, if God started it, he will finish it. You are safe in him. I mean, it's interesting, but a lot of people who reject the kind of theological ideas of Calvinism. They still believe in this little phrase called once saved, always saved. Which I think is true, but it's poorly worded, I think, which, you know, for reasons we're going to get to later on today. But this idea that that people that aren't Calvinists believe is, it's, you know, if you're saved once, then you're always saved. But I think there's this huge problem built into that way of thinking. Because if you think that there is something about your salvation that is left up to you, I don't think you can ever be sure that you your part in the equation is good enough. You know, I, I don't think it's possible to have absolute invincible assurance of your salvation unless you're willing to swallow the pill that we've been unpacking this whole time, which is, I could do nothing to save myself. God did everything. The good news of the gospel is, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And that's what gives you assurance. If I was somehow responsible to play a role in my salvation, even if it's one little step, even if it's one little part, how do you know if you've done that little step or that little part well enough to merit 
this thing called salvation. So that's perseverance of the saints defined. Let me defend it. And then we're going to try to, I'm going to try to anticipate some objections and questions at the end. I'm going to rattle off a bunch of verses as quickly as I can. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. This is that you know great song that we sing. I have called you by name. You are mine. And the point is, despite your circumstances, I will protect you and keep you and preserve you because I'm the one that bought you. You are mine. That is incredibly life-giving and beautiful. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. A covenant is a promise. And God is saying, I made a promise and therefore I will not turn away from doing my people good. And I am always faithful to my promises. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, I will lose none that the Father has given me. I will raise them up on the last day. This is definitive. His will will be done. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. No one is powerful enough to jeopardize your salvation. And the good news is that no one includes you. You aren't even able to sabotage your own salvation. He is greater than all. He's greater than you. He's more powerful than you. In other words, you can't screw this up. He has you in his hand and you will never perish if he has you. Romans 8, 28 through 30. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is this unbreakable chain here. Those he predestines, he will one day glorify. And the point is, he won't begin something that he won't finish. Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Nothing can separate you from his love for you. Nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He will sustain you to the end pretty clear. Ephesians 4 verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This says that you were sealed. And that's imagery that harkens back to the ancient practice of sealing special royal documents. Documents were authenticated when a king uh, would put some some hot wax on the back of it and kind of press his ring into it, leaving this impression that he is the one that owns and and authorizes that document. And the spirit is acting as the ring of the king, as it were, pressing his indelible mark on us, indicating his, his ownership. You are his, you belong to him. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring this work he began to completion. Hebrews 12.28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. It says that you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Being brought into his kingdom gives you invincible security, an unshakable assurance. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The grand finale of your salvation is imperishably waiting for you, but it's already yours as an inheritance. That's what this is saying. Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and the calling of God 
are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, meaning it can't be taken back. And there's a, there's a big practical implication of this that I'll just kind of address in passing. Because sometimes I get this question, uh, Matt, if somebody commits suicide, does that mean that they go to hell? And I always respond with, well, okay, why? Why would they? And sometimes the response back I get is, well, because you, you just died committing this terrible sin without a chance to ask God for, to forgive you. Now, think about that. If you were to think through this, does your whole salvation come down to just how you die? Like if you die and, and God kind of catches you on the downswing, as it were, do you lose it all? Let's just say you're at a bad place in your life and uh, you, you happen to maybe sin or commit suicide or do something awful right before you die. Do you, does, does everything get lost? I would say absolutely not. The calling of God is irrevocable. God doesn't grant salvation by grace and then all of a sudden take it back on the basis of demerit, as it were. God doesn't give you salvation as a gift, as, as an act of grace, on the basis of no merit in you whatsoever, and then later change his mind that now it's suddenly about you and, and your behavior and how well you're doing. That's perseverance of the saints defended through a slew of biblical passages. Uh, but I want to try to anticipate some objections and some questions to this. Rather than make a whole separate podcast about this, let's just tack it on here at the end. Four quick objections to anticipate. Number one, can people have false assurance? Well, that's a great question. Yes, I think it is possible to have false assurance. People can think that they're Christians and not be Christians. Uh, that's what Jesus talks about when he calls people hypocrites. That just because there's this outward expression of following Jesus doesn't mean that there is an actual inward work of the Spirit. So what do you do then when you feel spiritually insecure? You know, where you wonder, I, I have so messed up, or I feel so disconnected from God, or I'm spiritually bored. Does this mean I'm not a Christian? Am I a Christian? Okay, well, if the place that you start to try to answer that question is to look to yourself, where you, where you turn inwardly, and you look for whether or not you've jumped through enough hoops or done enough stuff, that's the worst thing that you can do because you'll, you'll always find problems with you. If you are looking to how you're feeling or how you're doing or what you've done to try to answer that question, am I a Christian? You're always going to find problems because you'll never know if you've done enough or if you've done it genuinely enough or if you've messed up too much. Don't begin trying to answer that question by looking at what you've done, but try to answer that question by looking at what he's done. 
I mean, I've heard of people who were encouraged to write down the date and time of when they became a Christian on like a piece of paper so that the next time you doubt your salvation, you can go back to that sheet of paper and look at it and say, oh, right there, that's sure enough, that's when I became a Christian. I think that's a form of false assurance because in that moment, you're not believing in Jesus. You're not trusting in Jesus, but you're believing in your believing. You're trusting in something that you've done, that when you trusted Jesus for the first time back then, that's what you're actually trusting in, and that is shaky, shaky ground. So go back to the cross. Start there. Say to yourself, despite my sin, despite my doubt, despite my struggles, he is my Savior. He is strong. He has paid for it all. You are not saved on the basis of the quality of your faith, but rather the object of your faith. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. Weak faith and a strong Savior always saves. Question number two. If you can't lose your salvation then why is the Bible full of passages about falling away? Hey, that's another great question. Here's a quick response to it. Uh, the, it when you look at the, at the church, the visible church, the visible church does not only consist of the elect. The, the church is full of true believers and those who profess Christ with their mouth but do not actually believe in him with their hearts. Uh, people that are deceived, you see this in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So yes, there are warnings in the Bible against falling away, and there's lots of calls for every member of the church, true believer and deceived sinner, to examine his heart, to repent, to look fully to Christ alone for salvation. And, you know, there, there, are, there are places in the Bible, there are calls in the Bible to make your, quote, calling and election sure that you have a responsibility as a Christian to follow Jesus today, to repent today. Perseverance, in some ways, it's really tied to sanctification and just the day in and day out life as a believer. So no, perseverance doesn't mean that everyone who makes a profession of faith in Christ and gives evidence of a changed life for a while is automatically in secure possession of eternal life. This is what the parable of the sower is about. You know, Jesus throws the, or the, the sower throws the seed on these different soils. And for some of these crops, it kind of pops up for a season, but it eventually dies and kind of falls away. My point is you cannot determine where somebody is spiritually. And the bottom line is that everyone has to do business with Jesus, and there is a responsibility to today continue to make your calling and election sure. Question number three. Does this mean that I'm eternally secure no matter how much I sin? Wow, that's a fascinating and great question. Here's, a, here's another quick response to it. Perseverance doesn't mean that a professing believer is eternally secure no matter how much they sin and 
backslide from the faith. This is why that phrase, once saved, always saved, can be a little dangerous because people can think, well, when I was at camp and I walked the aisle or I prayed the the sinner's prayer or I kind of raised my hand and said, I accept Jesus as my savior and now I can kind of do whatever I want. I'm in, you know, Jesus is like my fire insurance uh, policy. He got me out of hell and great, I can do whatever I want now. And that's dangerous because you cannot claim to be justified unless you are also being sanctified. That's a principle in the Bible. When you are born again, when you're regenerated by the Spirit, we looked at this last time, this creates someone new from the inside out where they have a profound change of motivation and attitude. A Christian who becomes an atheist, let's say, Let's say, they, let's say there's this, uh, someone who's a Christian and they become an atheist, they walk away from the faith, and they never return. They could never have been regenerate. This is what 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says. But there is a sense of which you know, real Christians do fall into serious sin. Look at King David, for example, without losing their salvation. But there is this principle, they, they do lose the joy of their salvation. Psalm 51, verse 12 speaks about this. So when someone who professes to be a Christian and they, and they sin and they blow, they blow it, there are, there are two options on the table. Option one is that they are what you might call apostate. They profess Christ, but they don't actually love him. They don't trust him. They, they never knew him. Or, number two, they've just simply fallen into radical sin. And you may never know. That's kind of the frustrating hard thing about this. Question number four. So how can I know that I'm really a Christian then? Again, solid question. David Martin Lloyd-Jones preached the book of Romans over a span of 10 years, which is in, I mean, that's just a lot. But when he got to Romans 5, he listed out five signs that you can know that you're a Christian. And I think this is so helpful, and I'm just going to pass this along in closing. He says this, you know that you're a Christian when and if, number one, you are at rest with your relationship with God. That there's, that there's no insecurity about maybe there being some unfinished business between the two of you. You know that you're a Christian when and if, number two, you know God's love in spite of your sin. You don't think that your sin sabotages his love for you, but you believe that he actually delights in people like me that screw up and fail all the time. You know that you're a Christian when and if, number three, you know how to answer your conscience, that you know how to have a conversation with yourself. You know, let's say you, um, you do something or even sometimes your conscience can just rise up and condemn you. Gosh, what's wrong with me? Man, I'm an idiot. How can I call myself a Christian? You know how to speak back to, your, to, to that voice. You, you know how to speak back to your own conscience with gospel truths. You know that you're a Christian when and if, number four, you don't fear death and judgment. 
where you really do know someone else died for you, that when we go to heaven, we don't ask for mercy. If Jesus has died for your sin, it would be unjust for God to demand payment for your sin if Jesus has already paid for it. Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And you know that you're a Christian when and if number five, you can do all of these things even when you fall into grievous, grievous, grievous sin. And this is the real test. If, if you look and say, oh, because I've sinned, because I've screwed up, because I've messed up so much, I've lost my salvation, then what you, what you really mean is the reason I had my salvation in the first place is because I was good. I was good, and now I've lost my salvation because I've been bad. But that's not the gospel. So is it possible to be fooling yourself that you may think that you're a Christian and you're not? Yes, I think so. But, but here's, here's the final call. Here's kind of the final thing. If you're fooling yourself, if you're even suspicious about yourself, if you have doubts about yourself, the answer is to run to Jesus. That's the big point here. The big point is for you to stop looking inside of you to answer that question, but rather to look outside of you, to fix your eyes on him, your Savior who is stronger than you, who is stronger than your own doubts, to run to Jesus because he is enough. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. So that's kind of Reformed theology in a nutshell. Tulip. We're going to look at one last thing next time. We're going to try to wrap everything up with one big grand finale summarizing episode 10 of Reformed theology. So until then...